We are in a five-part series that will conclude on September 11th, going through five different psalms. And specifically, we are looking at psalms of Zion and, and royal psalms. These are psalms that celebrate Messiah as king, who will reign from David's throne in Jerusalem over God's kingdom. And today we come to Psalm 95, which is one of these royal psalms, an enthronement psalm that celebrates the Lord as king, king over the entire universe. And while Psalm 95 does not have a little inscription or introduction to tell us who authored the psalm, we know from the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 that the author of Hebrews attributes this psalm to David. So we will be referring throughout our study in Psalm 95 to David as the human author of the psalm. And David looks to God as king, king of the universe, the great king who is seated in power above all gods and calls his people to praise. And we're going to see that David just doesn't call people to praise, even though we are in relationship. Relationship is also a call to responsibility. And we're going to see this call not only to praise because of our relationship with the king, but also a call to responsibility to hear. To hear his word and to respond. I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety. You can follow along in your copy of the text, Psalm 95. O come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us sing joyfully to him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also. The sea is his, for it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry ground. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my ways. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter into my rest. So this morning, David is going to challenge us to praise. To praise the Lord King over all of the universe, over all gods, to praise Him for His attributes, and to praise Him because He has initiated a relationship with His people. But with relationship also comes responsibility. And 
David the psalmist is going to also challenge us, not only to praise because of the relationship we have, but in our responsibility to him to hear him. I have three adult sons. All three were athletes. One track guy and the other two played basketball. And my youngest son had a deep passion for basketball ever since we can remember before he started school. He used to watch Michael Jordan on television, then run out into our driveway, try to mimic what Michael Jordan did, run back in the house, watch a little bit more, then he'd go back out and try to mimic Jordan. And his whole life, he passionately pursued basketball. As about a seventh grader, he wanted to really spend a lot of extra time on his game. So he always conned me into driving him down to the Y, the downtown Y. I became very familiar with all of the downtown coffee shops because I'd drop him off and then he would want me to come pick him up two hours later. So I would come pick him up and we had a common routine. I would go into the gym And he would ask me to work with him on his free throws. And we had a little system, depending on how much time we had, I would either declare we're going to do 10 or 20. By that, I meant that he has to make 20 in a row. And if you miss any, we start back over at zero. So if we're at 19, he misses, we're back to zero again. Thus, the reason why we need extra time if we're going to do 20. Now, that was a great thing to work with him on pressure for the shot. I've actually tried to carry that same, that same little uh, litany into my own life with listening. Every morning when I come to the office, I listen to the Bible. It's amazing how much of the Word of God you can get through just in a short commute. So I have the Bible on CD. I put it into my CD player and I listen. But I have a rule for myself. If I ever find myself wandering, if I ever find myself, my mind going somewhere else, I have to start over that chapter again. So right now I'm in the book of Ephesians. I have literally spent a couple of weeks just trying to get through Ephesians 1 because I have to continue to start over because my mind easily wanders. You see, I can hear it, but not hear it. I can be listening, but not listen. And what the psalmist tells us here today in Psalm 95 is today, if we actually hear him, we need to hear him. And not harden our hearts, not push away truth, but actually in our relationship, it's important that we recognize our responsibility to respond. So we come to Psalm 95. I'm going to pray for us that the Lord would give us ears to actually hear. Father, we pray that you would help us hear from you today. Help us not only just to listen, but to listen 
and to respond from our hearts to your truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. David begins Psalm 95 in verses 1 through the first half of verse 7 with a call to sing, to be joyful in singing praise to God, our great king. He is a great, he's such a great king. He's above all other gods. He's above all of his creation. And specifically, David says we need to be praising him because of three things. Because he's our savior, because he's our maker, and because he is our protector. You ever wonder why in your life you don't seem to have joy? I find myself questioning that a lot. Why do I not have joy in my life today? And I think there's a couple of answers to that question for me. One is that we know from Ephesians chapter 5 that one of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. Meaning, if I don't have joy in my life today, the Spirit of God is not in control of my life. My sinful nature is in control. I'm not yielded to the Lord. Maybe there's some sin I need to confess. I'm not depending on Him. So one of the reasons why I don't have joy some days is because I'm not yielded to the Spirit of God. Another reason why I find myself not having joy is I lose focus on who he is. And so the psalmist today is going to help us focus once again on what we need to see. And what we need to see is God in all of his attributes. The psalmist is going to choose a few. The first thing that he does... In verses in Psalm 95, verses 1 and 2, is he says, sing praise. Look at verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. It's interesting. There's two Hebrew verbs here. The first Hebrew verb is translated, let us sing for joy. Now, The second Hebrew verb in my Bible is translated, let us shout joyfully. And both of those are pretty calm translations. The first Hebrew word is often used in the Old Testament in reference to like a loud call or a cheer. Something that you might hear more at a University of Iowa football game than you would necessarily in church. The second word, let us shout joyfully, is used in the Old Testament in reference to like a war cry or a shout of victory. This is raucous praise. This is joy. This is yelling out for the Lord. Pastor Ed alluded to it, although he put his own little twist on it. What I said this morning is I enjoy worshiping, singing praise next to people who have no musical talent. But if they sing out, it can even be the same note. That note can even be flat. But if they sing out, it does my heart good because I know that they are not singing to hear, to be part of the person next to them. They're not trying to impress anybody. They are singing to the Lord. And that's what this psalm is saying for us, what we should be doing. 
just boldly declaring Him. And He specifically gives us three areas in this psalm for which we should be joyous, rejoicing, praising the Lord. The first is our salvation. Notice the end of verse 1. He refers to the Lord as the rock of our salvation. He's the foundation of our belief. And I think David here is using the word salvation broader than just deliverance, like he helped me out of a jam. I think he's including here the concept of our spiritual salvation. And we're going to see that in this psalm, there's reference here to God's covenant relationship with Israel. God chose them as a people. He reached down into their lives and entered into a relationship with them. He is their God. Look at with me at the first half of verse 7. For He is our God and we are the people of His pasture. Later in the book of Jeremiah chapter 31, when we see that statement of the new covenant, God tells Israel, I will be your God. You will be my people. And here the psalmist is saying we should have joy because we are in relationship with God. Covenant relationship. Now, David here is addressing Israel, but as the church of Jesus Christ, we have that same joy, don't we? He helped us see our need for a Savior. He provided for us a bridge to God in the person of Jesus Christ. He has made covenant promises to us. At the moment of faith, He gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us and is our seal of our future inheritance. We rejoice in our salvation. It's reason to shout out, in praise. The next thing the psalmist does in verses 3 through 6 is talk about the fact that he rules over all. Look with me at verse 3. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Now by saying that, David isn't saying that there's actually other valid gods. It's a little g. He's saying whatever people choose to worship, all that people choose to worship other than the God is actually created by God. And he gets into that in verses 4 and 5. He talks about the Lord ruling over everything up and down and side by side. Everything vertical and horizontal. Notice verse 4. And in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. From the deepest crevice in the deepest part of the sea to the highest peak, the highest mountain, he's over it. From the furthest point east to the furthest point west, from the oceans to the dry land, he's over it. So the psalmist says, therefore, verse 6, come, let us worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. He's our Creator. 
And David here could be talking just simply about the fact that he made us because he made us. We owe our whole life to him. He also could be talking about the fact that he is the maker of our community. For Israel, he entered into a relationship with them. They are his chosen people. For the church, he entered into a relationship with us through the person of Jesus Christ. We are his people. So here, David says, we need to be praising him. He's the foundation of our salvation. He is our maker. And then finally, at the end of verse 7, he talks about the fact that he's also our protector. We are the sheep of his hand. Why is it so often we go through our day and we don't have joy? This summer, Barbara and I did one of my favorite things to do, and that is to spend time along the Atlantic Ocean. I just love being along the ocean. I think it's maybe because I'm a flatlander. I spent my whole life in the Midwest. And so every morning for a week, we would get up. Some mornings, we would go straight to the ocean and watch the sunrise, and then eat, and then go back, and maybe go back again in the evening. But every day... Mid-morning, we went to the ocean. Now, my wife is a sun person. She is a waterfront person. I'm a shade person. And so we kind of figured out how to make that work. So we spend 20 minutes, a half hour together, and then she enjoys the sun, and I walk. So every day, I did a five-mile walk. I kicked off my keen sandals, I got in the, just on the water's edge and I would walk for five miles. And there's markers along the beach so I knew exactly how far I went. So I'm on my five-mile walk just out on the water. And I'd pray and I'd think. I'd even buy, I'd see like one or two people the entire time, which was just perfect. And so I'm on this five-mile walk, just me in the Atlantic Ocean, no people, an occasional porpoise. And uh, I'm coming back. And I'm almost back to where Barbara is, and I start thinking, man, I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing. And I couldn't figure out, you know, it's like sudden onset, um, uh, eye problems or something. Until I realized that whether it's the salt or maybe ocean mist, but my glasses had developed kind of a, a layer of gook. On my glasses. And so I would have to take, take them off, took my t-shirt, clean them off, put my glasses back on. Like, whoa! I didn't realize that I couldn't see. And it was just so bright and so sharp and so clear again. And one of the things that happens to me, and it probably happens to you, is that we go through our week and we don't realize that we've stopped really being able to see clearly. The, the worries of the day, the pressures of our lives, the heavy, heavy stuff that we sometimes endure, it, it, in a sense, it, it starts kind of clouding our ability to really see clearly. And it robs us of our joy. 
And so what the psalmist does here is he reminds us how, in a sense, to take off our spiritual glasses, clean them off, and see clearly again. How do we do that? We focus in on who God is. And we've mentioned this for a couple of weeks. One of the best things that we can do is when you come to your Bible, and I highly encourage every Christian, try to come to your Bible every day. If it's for two minutes, it's better than none. But when we come to our Bible, we do so starting out by talking to God. And say, God, please help me today. Is that as I'm listening, as I'm reading your word, help me today to see something about you. It doesn't really make a difference where you are in the scripture. Because who God is, is a thread all the way through. And so just to come before him and say, God, please help me see something about you today. And what happens is that when we start really seeing who he is and all of his attributes, it's like taking the lens of our life and making it clear again so that we can actually have joy regardless of our circumstances. Keep your finger in Psalm 95. Turn with me over to the book of Acts 16. One of my favorite accounts in the book of Acts is in Acts 16. When Paul and Silas come along a woman who is demon-possessed, and there's some businessmen, quote-unquote businessmen, who are taking advantage of her, making money off of her, because evidently she's like telling people what's going to happen in their lives. And Paul and Silas cast this demon out of her, and all of a sudden these quote-unquote businessmen are mad. There goes our revenue stream. And so they make they file a complaint against Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas are hauled in. And we see up in Acts 16, verse 23, they get beaten. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them secure, securely. He, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now that's not a good, that's not a good day, is it? It's like, oh man. They are hurting. They have been beaten. I don't even know how that would feel. But it has to feel worse than anything I've ever felt. And they are in this dingy, stinking, gross cell. Beaten. Chained. And it tells us in verse 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. And I look at that and think, how is that possible? How is it possible to see that clearly that they could actually be rejoicing and praising the Lord in that set of circumstances And the only thing that I can say is that they were under the Spirit's control and that they were actually seeing the attributes of God. They saw God's hand in their life. In fact, it's evident that his hand was in their life because we see that the guy who ran the jail, 
There's this earthquake and he thought everybody had escaped. He's about ready to kill himself. And Paul and Silas yell out to him, hey, stop. We're all here. What's the first thing that comes out of this guy's mouth? He says, man, how do I get saved? You see, I think he'd been listening to Paul and Silas. They were able to still have joy in their life, regardless of circumstances that probably hardly any one of us in this room have endured. How did they have that joy? Because they focused in on the attributes of their God. They were singing praise to Him. They were declaring who He is. Now the psalmist here, in Psalm 95, calls believers to celebrate that relationship that we have with our God. But with relationship also comes responsibility. And he moves to that responsibility in the second half of verse 7 down through verse 11. When we have this relationship with the king of the universe, along with it comes responsibility. Responsibility to hear him and actually to respond to him. And when we hear him and respond to him, we actually can enter into the promises that he has for us and experience everything that he has for us in his promises, including rest. Now here, in verses 7 through 11, David is talking about the land of promise. You remember in your Old Testament history, clear back in the book of Genesis, God says to to Abram in chapter 12, hey, I want you to leave home. I want you to go from the land of your dad, And I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. And if you obey me, I'm going to make of you a great nation. You're going to have descendants as numerous as the stars of the heaven and the sands of the sea. I'm going to bless you and those who bless you I will bless. From him, from Abraham will come kings. So much blessing will come to Abraham that through him it will be possible for all the families of the earth to experience blessing. Those are the promises, the covenant promises that God made to Abraham. And that was passed on to his son Isaac, to Jacob, and eventually the nation of Israel. And God promised Israel that they would be able to enter that rest in this promised land. And as we pick it up here, as David recounts from seven, the second half of verse 7 down through 11, he's talking about when Moses was leading the people of Israel. They were going, they were heading to the land of promise, and then the people of Israel just started getting a hard heart. They're stubborn. They refuse to obey. And what they really did is they started to question God's faithfulness, even though he had shown it to him. And and so we read here in verse 8, Don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen my work. And it goes back, clear back to Exodus chapter 17. Remember, Moses had led the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And he carried a staff with him that that God used as an instrument to just demonstrate to the people of Israel so many times of his faithfulness. 
The Red Sea had been parted by God's faithfulness. The people of Israel had been released from bondage to Egypt by faithfulness. And now they're out in the wilderness and, and they say, oh man, we don't have anything to drink. What's God done to us? Where is he? And they started to complain against God and question his faithfulness in their lives. And so the Lord said, they are not. This generation is not going to enter my rest. They are not going to be able to enter the land of promise. Verse 11. Therefore, I swore in my anger, truly they shall not enter into my rest. Meaning, they are not going to be able to go into that promised land and enjoy all the blessing that God had for them. They would die in the wilderness. Now, what's interesting is that Psalm 95 becomes a key passage of Scripture in the New Testament when we come to the book of Hebrews. So I'm going to ask you, invite you, to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And in in the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, we see Psalm 95 is a very central passage. Now, remember, the book of Hebrews has a very specific premise. The author is proving that there is a better way to God than the Old Testament system. For that Old Testament believer, many of them thought that if they could just obey every one of God's laws, they would make themselves good enough for God. Except... Even in the Old Testament, we say that that's impossible. But people continue to try to earn God's merit. I, I really think, you know, it's like that, the little engine who could. I think I can, I think I can, I think I can do it. And the author of book of Hebrews says there's a better way. There's a better way, and instead of through the Old Testament system... The way to be right with God is through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the only one that could actually have merit with the Father through his life because there's no sin in him at all. And so what Jesus did is he took all the penalty of all of our sin upon himself and he paid The penalty for your sin and my sin. And so the author of the book of Hebrews is saying to that church that received the book of Hebrews and to us today, stop trying to work your way to God. Now there's evidently people in this church who know the right things to say. They could probably quote some scripture. They call themselves Christians, but they really don't want to humble themselves enough to say, I can't do it. I can't do it on my own. I have to put my faith in Jesus. They're still saying, we can, we can, we can. I can be a good enough person. I can do enough things. I can earn right relationship with God because I am such a good, outstanding person. So here, the author of Hebrews goes back to Psalm 95 and calls that kind of thinking hardness of heart. 
He says that kind of thinking is actually not listening to what the Lord is saying. Because the Lord is saying you can't, and you all are saying you can't. So he comes to 95, and I'm just going to read a few verses out of Hebrews, starting in Hebrews 3. Saying that Christ is the superior way to be right with God. Starting verse 6. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as when they provoked me, and in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was angry with this generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Look over now with me at chapter 4, starting the read in verse 6. Therefore, Since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day. Today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as had been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day. After that, so there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. So here's what's happening. David is talking about a rest of entering a physical land. The author of Hebrews is using that as an illustration to talk about spiritual rest, specifically salvation. So David says, just as these Israelites didn't trust the Lord enough that he was faithful to his promises, the author of Hebrews is saying, you who claim to be Christians, some of you are just talking the talk. You need to actually hear the word of the Lord. Today is the day to stop faking it. Today is the day to humble ourselves enough to say, I can't. I finally realize that I cannot be a good enough person to earn merit with God. I'm solely going to trust in Jesus Christ. I'm a native Iowan. Grew up in Council Bluffs, Iowa, right across the Missouri River from Omaha. And in 2008, a pedestrian bridge was built from Omaha over to Council Bluffs, Iowa. Senator Bob Kerry had secured $18 million to pay for part of that bridge. Now, those of us who are native Iowans do realize that that bridge is necessary because those poor Nebraska people need any way they can to get out of there over to Iowa. But think about that bridge. It's 3,000 feet long. Growing up on the Iowa side as a kid, I used to go over to the river, and I can remember seeing that river actually swallow an entire tree, meaning there's a tree, a big tree coming down the river, and it just disappears. It's a dangerous river. There's no way that one person could bridge their way across that river. As impossible as that is, 
Think about how impossible it is for one person to bridge their way to God. It's possible. We can't be a good enough person. In fact, the New Testament tells us that I could obey the entire law. And James says, if I disobey one part, I'm guilty of it all. So that's why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, says that to enter that rest, to be right with God, to be saved, only comes one way, and that's through grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. It's a gift. And in human pride, there's people, there's probably people at Faith Bible Church spent their entire life here who really, in the depths of their heart, have never really been willing to say, I can't do it myself. If you're here today and you know in the depths of your heart that you are still relying on yourself to earn merit with God, I would encourage you, we have a little booklet we'd like to give to you today called Welcome to the Family. And in this little booklet, the first chapter is devoted to how to be right with God. I mean, the subheadings are, there's some bad news. I can't do it myself. There is good news that Jesus did it for us. And then it says, how can I be sure? This little booklet, you can take your own Bible out, look up passages of Scripture that will show you in your Bible how you can know for sure that you're right with God. Maybe you have a a relative or a close friend that you know would benefit from this. I encourage you as well to stop back in the prayer room. One of our elders will be back there. Take one of these and go through it or give it to your relative or your friend. Because today is the day. Just as David said, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. It's a word to us. You know, the psalmist said, those of us who are following after the Lord, who are his people, it's so important for us to see clearly, and we do that by seeing his attributes and all that he has done for us in relationship. But with relationship comes responsibility. And one of those responsibilities is actually to hear him. And one of the main things that God calls people to is himself. And as a New Testament Christian, he calls us to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. He calls us to finally stop trying to work our way to him. And instead actually enter into relationship with him through faith. Father, I thank you for Psalm 95. I thank you that you are a God who deserves our praise and how you can help us have joy regardless of our circumstances as we focus in on who you are. And I thank you with relationship comes responsibility. You want us to hear you. And one of the main things we need to hear from you is how we can be right with you. And I would pray that there's even one person here today who is still trusting in their own ability to be right with you. That they would yield themselves to your word and and, and come to you and say, I, I can't. 
Jesus is the only way, and I'm putting my trust in him today. Father, we thank you for the joy of knowing you through the person of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.